This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And now it's time for a look back to a device that helped win the West. Here's Jesse with the story of windmills. You can drive just about anywhere in America and find windmills if you're looking for them. The old metal ones you see in paintings of Texas or the Midwest. From the novelty lawn ornament variety for under a hundred bucks to the towering vintage water pumps accenting skylines next to barns or pastures and cornfields. Fully restored or in beautiful decay, working or not, these giant relics of Americana aren't just for decoration. And the West couldn't have been won without them. Out of the mid-1850s, salesman John Burnham and machinist Daniel Halliday came up with the basic design that we would recognize today with the Halliday Windmill Company. It was relatively lightweight, nimble, it could swivel so it was always facing the wind and angle its blades to adjust for speed to avoid damage and strong winds automatically. Families and farms were able to pump water and store it in tanks any time the wind was blowing. Right around the turn of the century, between the 1800s and the 1900s, there was over 600 windmill companies in the United States. Tanya Meadow is with the American Windmill Museum in Lubbock, Texas. The American Windmill Museum was started in 1993 by a lady who was a teacher at Texas Tech University and Mr. Coy Harris, who is still our executive director. This building houses over 110 windmills. We've got windmills in here from as big as six foot wide, which is the diameter of the wheel, how we measure a windmill, up to 25 feet wide in diameter. The old steam engines could only go 15 to 30 miles before they had to stop for water, depending on the terrain. You look at our little towns out here in West Texas, 15 to 30 miles down the road, there's a little town, probably sprung up there because that's where the railroad had to stop in order for them to be able to uh, get water for the steam engine. So there was a major relationship between the railroads and the windmills. The windmill pumped the water to power the steam engines on the trains of the first transcontinental railroad out west. There's only one company that stood the test of time and continues to build them right here in the good old USA. And that would be the Air Motor Company. The Air Motor Company started off in Chicago, Illinois, late 1800s, and then in the 1950s they were purchased by a Texan, and the plant was moved to San Angelo, Texas, where it still is today, and they still make windmills today. Your larger ranches still use windmills. It's so much easier to put up a windmill for under $20,000 than it is to try to run 20 miles of electrical line in order to be able to pump water for your large ranches. and The, the Four Sixes Ranch is a big one. They, have, they actually have a full-time windmiller. One of the reasons that the air motor business is still in business today is they were always thinking, what can we do to make life easier? What can we do to make life better? They were one of the first ones to, to create what was called the power mill. And the power mill would have been a different gearing system on a building outside the, the barn or one of your other outbuildings. And inside, underneath, there would be a grinder so that they could grind their corn and their wheats in order to be able to have their flowers in order to do their breads and grains. 
They also were one of the first ones to enclose the gearbox. It has an oil reservoir underneath it and a big bonnet on top of it. And they said that you only had to oil your windmill once a year. Now that's a major time saving as opposed to having to climb up there three or four times a day and put oil on the gears. Many of the windmills that dotted the path out west were rendered obsolete by the 1930s as electric and diesel-powered trains took over the railways. Once electric pumps became popular, windmills on farms went neglected and began to break down over time without proper maintenance. But some people like to get these old wind pumps working again. Like Rick Ritter of St. Jacob, Illinois, he restored his flint and whaling brand windmill that's been standing on the family farm as long as he can remember. I just thought it was so cool. Um, I never got to see it run till I was 40-something when I fixed it. It uh, always stood out here on the farm and never got used. It had weeds, vines, morning glories, climbed all the way up to the top. And in probably 1990, I started cutting vines at the bottom and eventually, after all everything died on it, I was able to pull it all off. All the, the vines that were grown around it. I had an old guy tell me, you need to get those vines off there because what will happen during a heavy windstorm with vines and stuff on there blocking it, the wind will take the whole thing to, to the ground. So he said, basically, you even need to get the vines off of it or else you're going to be out there with a cutting torch cutting it up. And I just the whole, I just didn't want to lose it. I thought it was just a, a neat piece of history to have standing here. So I cut the vines, pulled it off. It took me years to get that done until we got it all taken down which I had a cherry picker come in and take it down and it stayed on the ground for a year while everything got repainted and refinished on it. I think they bought it used. Um, 1926 is the year on this one. It's been standing there since I was a kid. I never got to see it run at all till I was till actually I restored it. I must have shot a pickup truck load of 22 caliber bullets out here and whatever and uh, for some good reason I just never shot holes in the windmill. Most windmills you see if they aren't destroyed from wind damage or whatever, somebody's blowed holes in them, and especially in that crown that's on top of here. And once you blow holes in that, from the bottom up, especially water gets in the top, gets into the gears and bearings, rusts it solid, and it's pretty well junk. That's the way a lot of these got ruined, was bullet holes, basically. The other way is you would run them completely out of oil and let them spin, because what will happen, you'll get a big windstorm come up, it'll spin, all the bearings in there will get really hot and all of a sudden it will lock up and the inertia of that spinning windmill will wad this thing up like a ball and put it on the ground. Once again, a torch comes out and you're going to end up hauling it away as scrap iron. So I always liked it standing here and just didn't shoot at it. And when the weeds grew up, I pulled the weeds off of it and then eventually I fixed it. And great job, as always, to Jesse. And my goodness, there's an American Windmill Museum in Lubbock, Texas, and a special thanks if you're ever driving through, stop by. The Windmill Story, an important part of American history here on Our American Story. Well, my goodness gracious, let me tell you the news. 
My head's been wet with the midnight dew. I've been down on bended knee, talking to the man from Galilee. He spoke to me with a voice so sweet. I thought I heard the shuffle of angels' feet. He called my name and my heart stood still. When he said, "John, go do my will. Go tell that long-tongued liar. Go and tell that midnight rider. Tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter. Tell 'em that God's gonna cut 'em down. Tell 'em that God's gonna cut 'em down." This is our American stories. You're listening to the one and only Johnny Cash. Not a lot of folks bump in with that song in particular. We love digging into the catalog of Cash. We love music on this show, and we love storytellers. And my goodness, was there a better one than Johnny Cash? Well, Greg Hengler's got a music story for us today, folks. Let's take a listen to what he's got. The role of a record producer can't be underestimated. They make singers into celebrities, and as we are about to hear, they can take has-beens and turn them into must-haves. This is the story of a friendship between the young record producer Rick Rubin and the aging rock legend Johnny Cash. Here's Rick Rubin. I think everyone benefits from having a producer just because it really helps having a sort of an impartial jury to make sense of it all. But there's no right or wrong way to do this. It's like any way you find the inspiration works. Jam means record. Death is short for definitive. Definitely the best records you could buy today. Here's Adam Horowitz from the Beastie Boys. When we first met Rick Rubin, I didn't know anything about production. I didn't think about production. I didn't know that it even existed. Rick definitely was into that. Luckily, he was good at it. Do you know what I mean? Like he could have sucked, and that would have been the end of it for all of us. Here's music historian Jason King. Rick Rubin started Def Jam, the massive multi-million dollar enterprise in his dorm room at NYU. And he went on to produce Run DMC, uh, Beastie Boys, Metallica and Slayer. He's produced Red Hot Chili Peppers, the Dixie Chicks. He's an incredibly diverse and wide-ranging producer. The reason that the artists might not all fit into one genre is it's not really the way I listen to music. I just like good music. And I try not to categorize it too much. In the early 1990s, Rick Rubin started a new record label, Deaf American, and he was really interested in testing himself as a producer. By that time, most of the artists I'd worked with were new and young artists, and it felt like it would be a really、um, interesting challenge to find a great older artist who'd been through a lot and maybe wasn't doing their best work at the time. And the first person I thought of was Johnny Cash. He'd been dropped by two labels. He'd already had a comeback, and that was probably 25 years earlier. Here's daughter Roseanne Cash. He thought people didn't care about his work anymore. He didn't feel the support from the label. He was floundering a bit. Here's guitarist Marty Stewart. Country music would have nothing to do with it. In the '80s, when I was in his band, we recorded album after album after album, and nothing happened. Here's Johnny Cash. Somebody stole all the magic, like in the '70s, some of the '80s, when the magic of the music was gone. 
and I was just doing it because I do it. I was just doing it because that's what I do, and I hate that. A friend of mine set up a meeting for us. He was playing at a dinner theater in Orange County. It didn't feel like a place that was appropriate for someone of his importance to be playing. It just was sad. My contract was running out with the other record company, and uh, Rick Rubin came down to see me. And uh, I liked the way he talked. You know, he talked like he reminded me of uh, Sam Phillips. And I said, what would you do with me that uh, everybody else has tried to do, you know, and couldn't? And he said, well, what would you like to do? We always started in my living room just with a guitar and talking about songs. Like about 18 and 25, I left Tennessee very much alive. And I would have him sing me songs from his childhood. He played me songs that they would sing on the cotton fields when he used to pick cotton. The Tennessee stud was long and lean, the color of the sun, and his eyes were green. He really gave me a tremendous education in this lost music that I didn't know anything about, and I loved it. Heard a little baby on the cabin floor, little horse cold playing around the door. From the first time that we met, we recorded everything, just had the machine going all the time. It becomes second nature. People forget their recording and just sort of be themselves, and that's the goal to get to that point. The first album we made was mostly solo acoustic. And then it came time to do the next one, and he had Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers as the backing band. Here's Tom Petty. I never pick cotton. Rick's idea was to set John free and let that artist live. Daddy died young, working in a coal mine. John would start to sing and we get kind of a feel for how the arrangement might go, and then, woof, everybody jump on to their respective instruments. And it was fast cars and whiskey. Here's guitarist Mike Campbell. I mean, it was raw, and at times it wasn't musical, but it was so real and so heartfelt that it, it almost brought me to tears. But then Rick would really try to push Johnny to do things that he would never think of doing. I played Johnny Cash the Soundgarden song Rusty Cage, which is a heavy metal song with Chris Cornell singing in a very high-pitched scream. And Johnny listened to it and just shook his head, and he's just like, I, I don't really know what you're thinking. Like, I, I don't, um, can't imagine myself doing it. And then I made an acoustic demo of it. Bit by bit, Rick guided us through the arrangement, and there it was, you know. You wired me awake and hit me with a hand of broken nails. Johnny was really happy, and he said, I love this. This is great. He goes, this is going to piss off so many people. I'm going to break. I'm going to break my. going to break my rusty cage. 
It don't hurt anymore. A lot of the job is that of being a therapist, of being there and uh, really hearing the artist and hearing what their vision is and really setting up a place where they feel they're safe and can be vulnerable and show themselves completely. And at last I am free. The infusion he gave my dad of the old confidence and passion was so powerful. I mean, Rick was like an angel who came in and said, remember, this is who you are. That I cared so I mean, it was as simple as that. Remember. And it's wonderful now. I don't hurt anymore. And great work on that, Greg. And wow, what a thing to say about somebody. He made me feel safe, vulnerable, and he allowed me to be myself completely. This is beautiful. And that is that is really what record producers do. It's what great directors do in the end. And really, that's really it's actually what good bosses and parents can do. Johnny Cash's story, Rick Rubin's story. Actually, it's a love story. If you read A Man Called Cash, you won't believe it. It is a love story. Because one man's love of another saved the guy's career and resuscitated a career a whole new generation of MTV viewers. Listen to Delia's Gone and so many of those great Deaf American records. If you've never heard them before, go on Google, put on Johnny Cash and Rick Rubin and just sit down and listen. And that the background and backup band was, well, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers? And they were just serving Johnny too. The record labels got it wrong. Rick Rubin got it right. What an American story. What a great music story here on Our American Stories. When the man comes around... Hear the trumpets, hear the pipers One hundred million angels singing Multitudes are marching to the big kettle drum Voices calling, voices crying Some are born and some are dying It's Alpha and Omega's kingdom come and the whirlwind is in the thorn tree The virgins are all trimming their wicks The whirlwind is in the thorn tree This is Our American Stories, and up next, the story on the human story, how humanity has suffered and thrived over decades, centuries, and millennia. Here's our own Alex Cortez to bring us this story. I used to believe in the good old days. I used to believe that the world was um, kind of an awful place. You're listening to a guy named Johan Norberg, the author of a book titled Progress. Looking at big business, looking at polluting factories, thinking that there has to be another way. There has to be good old days back in the past where we live more in harmony with one another and with nature. And when I began looking for that, when I began looking at history specifically and the history of my own ancestors in northern Sweden, I realized that that was all a lie. 
In the late 1870s, there was a major crop failure in northern Sweden, where my ancestors lived. My great-great-great-great-grandfather, Erik Norberg, and his family were there trying to deal with the problems. He tried to smuggle in bags of wheat flour from southern Sweden. The trade wasn't open yet. There were still major difficulties in trying to supply people with this. But when people look at their family trees at that time, the young Swedes who look at their family history, they see that it's been cut off many of the branches around 1868, 1869, 1870 because of this major crop failure. It was, there were famine years. Crops had failed everywhere in the country and obviously it was worse in the coldest northern parts. Those who were short of flour had to mix bark into their bread to make it go longer. And one man in a neighboring parish recalled his personal experience when he was seven years old of, of those hungry years. And he said that we often saw mother weeping to herself and was hard on a mother not having any food to put on the table for her hungry children. Emaciated, starving children were often seen going from farm to farm, begging for a few crumbs of bread. One day, three children came to us, crying and begging for something to still the pangs of hunger. Sadly, her eyes brimming with tears, our mother was forced to tell them that we had nothing but a few crumbs of bread, which we ourselves needed. And when we children saw the anguish in the unknown children's uh, eyes, we burst into tears and begged mother to share with them what crumbs we had. Hesitantly, she acceded to our request and the unknown children just ate everything before going on to the next farm immediately. And this was a good way off from our home. And the following day, all three children were found dead between our farm and the next. It's, it's a pretty awful story. Well, you know, where would I have been back in those good old days? Well, I wouldn't have been anywhere because life expectancy was shorter than 30 years and I'm older than that now, so... It used to be that we all suffered from chronic undernourishment. It was basically 100%, except a tiny, tiny elite in even our part of the world, in Europe and America. Most people live with, with famine as a universal phenomenon. Uh, the moment there was bad weather, there was a crop failure and, and people starved. Even in the richest countries of Europe, as late as the 17th and 18th and even the 19th century, there were widespread local famines. They didn't have modern agricultural technology, they didn't have trade, they didn't have infrastructure, railways, trucks that could bring food into the areas that needed it. So uh, bad weather was a death sentence to a lot of people. Things were far worse in poorer countries, in Asia, in China and in India, even in the 20th century, bad harvests resulted in major disasters. And this is something that specifically artificial fertilizer increased yields that dramatically. But more than that, just having modern infrastructure and trade makes it possible to bring food to places with food deficiency. 
Uh, nowadays, it's come down so incredibly rapidly. In the 1940s, it has been estimated that every second person on the planet suffered from chronic undernourishment. It's not just that they suffered from a famine now and then, but constant chronic undernourishment which forced me to reconsider many of the things that I took for granted, that many of the things that I used to complain about were really the things that saved the lives of my ancestors and made it possible for me to be here. In fact, technological innovation was so impactful that some worried that it was too impactful, that it led to too many humans and more than this earth could provide for. If I were to mention someone, it's Julian Simon, the grand old man of development optimism. The economist who explained in the 1960s and 70s when everybody was saying that overpopulation would lead to starvation even in the United States and in Europe uh, in the long run. He told people to have a little bit more of, a, of trust in people, in the average human being, because that's the ultimate resource, not the resources that we have uh, in the ground or in our mountains. It's human ingenuity. It's humans who create progress by imagining new things, experimenting with new ideas and experimenting then with technology and business models to produce more things. Uh, look, the problem is not too many people because human beings are the ultimate resource. They are the most important ones. The more people, the more eyeballs who look at our problems and the greater the chance that one of them will come up with a great idea that we can all imitate and therefore continue to make progress. And that had a profound effect on me because I used to think that more people would mean more destruction, using more resources and taking it out of the ground and ruining the planet. Whereas, no, they'll come up with better ways of using, of conserving resources as well and recycling them and using substitutes for it. And therefore, in the long run, reach a state where we create more wealth with fewer resources. And on March 14th, 1914, a little boy named Norman Borlaug was born was just another island to most folks, but who would turn out to be this ultimate resource. You know, if um, we had a contest and trying to come up with the greatest person in history who saved the most lives in history, we would, Norman Borlaug would make the, uh, the final list because he was, uh, and to many people, an unknown person, but he probably saved the lives of perhaps a billion people around the world. And when we come back, we'll hear more of the story of the incredible Norman Borlaug. And it's so true. Bad weather, bad harvests throughout the centuries, right up until the 19th century, the middle of it, and even the early 20th century, were death sentences. And my goodness, what free trade, artificial fertilizer, and of course, energy itself, electricity, have done, and irrigation systems. These are things that we have to be taught in schools as we contextualize all of our discussions about almost everything. And that's what we try and do here on this show, is tell these stories. You've been listening to Johan Norberg, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute and author of the book Progress, 10 Reasons to Look Forward to the Future, which, by the way, you can pick up at Amazon.com or, heck, even a bookstore if you care to. And when we come back, we'll continue with the story of Norman Borlaug, who saved possibly up to a billion people with his efforts and with his ideas. 
More of all of this here on Our American Story. And we continue here with Our American Stories and with Johann Norberg telling the story of Norman Borlaug, an Iowan who was passionate about eradicating world hunger. And rather than complaining about it, talking about it, uh, he did something about it. He had the idea that the only thing that can deal with this is higher yields, more agricultural productivity. So he tried to come up with better high-yield crops. And he did thousands of crossings of wheat. That's where he started. And he came up with a high-yielding new breed that resisted many pests and was not sensitive to the number of hours of light, so they could be grown in many more climates. And importantly, was also of a dwarf variety. Since wheat with tall, thin stalks expend too much energy, growing just in edible sections, and they also collapse when they grew too quickly. So he had this new crop and he wanted to expand this, taught farmers how to use it, and he also showed them how modern irrigation and artificial fertilizer could increase the yields. And this was the beginning of the Green Revolution that saved the lives of hundreds of, of millions. He introduced this quickly in Mexico in the 1960s, and amazingly, in a very short time, their harvest was six times larger because they used this new crop variety and the new agricultural methods. But my favorite part of the story was Norman Borlaug's obsession with making sure that more people around the world got access to this green revolution. In the early 1960s, India and Pakistan faced an acute risk of massive starvation, and everybody thought that millions and millions of people would die. So he thought, we have to go there immediately. So he sent 35 trucks with this high-yield seeds from Mexico to Los Angeles to ship them there. And he faced so many obstacles. His persistence was just amazing. The convoy was held up by Mexican police, and then it was blocked at the US border because they had a ban on seed imports. But then when he managed to get through that, he was stopped by the National Guard because there were riots blocking the harbor. And he managed to deal with it all, and in the end, the ship sailed away, and he got there to India and Pakistan. He tells the story about how he went to bed thinking the problem was at last solved. But then, Borla woke up to the news that war had broken out between India and Pakistan. But not even that uh, stopped him and his team, so instead they worked tirelessly throughout the war. And they planted the seeds sometimes within sight of artillery flashes. And this is really how you have to decide where to look. If you look at the um, politics, the governments, the guns and the thunder, you become miserable. But if you look at the background, what goes on on the ground, lots of hard work by scientists and engineers and farmers, and they managed to do this while war was going on. And despite late planning and all these problems, yields rose 
70%, enough to prevent a general wartime famine. They even had problems with finding bags and rail costs just to, to store all the crops, all the harvest. And some school buildings even had to be closed temporarily so that they could be used for grain storage. So in just a few years, India and Pakistan, that had been written off by others, environmentalists like Paul Ehrlich had said that we just have to forget about India and Pakistan. They will all die because it's impossible to supply them with enough food. Well, in just a matter of a few years, Norman Borlaug and his team managed to help them to become self-sufficient in the production of cereals. And if that's not a true hero, I don't know who is. And one of the last things that he did was that he talked a lot about the problems in Africa because the problem was that the Green Revolution wasn't repeated in Africa. The big foundations who used to support his work, the Ford and Rockefeller Foundation, they began to be a bit more skeptical and so was the World Bank because environmentalists, they weren't that eager on uh, artificial fertilizer and modern agricultural technologies. So the number of undernourished continued to grow. They kept destroying wild habitats with slash and burn subsistence agriculture. And this really made Borlaug angry. And Johan now reads Borlaug's intense response. Some of the environmental lobbyists of the Western nations are the salt of the earth. But many of them are elitists. They've never experienced the physical sensation of hunger. They do their lobbying from comfortable office suites in Washington or Brussels. If they live just one month amid the misery of the developing world, as I have for 50 years, they'd be crying out for tractors and fertilizer and irrigation canals and be outraged that fashionable elitists back home were trying to deny them these things. They might not be romantic, artificial fertilizers, but they save hundreds of millions of lives. So could genetically modified crops that could increase yields even more. And Borla was very angry with Western lobbyists who tried to scare African countries away from doing that. And on his deathbed, he said that, look, his work is not done until these technologies could also be implemented in, in Africa. You know, people have always been innovative and hardworking and in every historical era and in every geographical area, they are. But that doesn't help much if the rulers can do anything. If someone who comes up with new solutions, new production, creates wealth. If the ruler or his uncle or second cousin can just move in and take all of it away from them and can change the, the rules immediately, nothing much happens. Then they have to work hard just to get around that kind of abuse of power and the kind of corruption that this entails. The thing that changed and made everything happen in basically the last 200 years, starting in the Western world, was the start of rule of law. Because until then, why work hard? Why invest in the future? Why invest in 
for example, better agricultural technologies, invest in a new irrigation system or in new high-yielding crops. If someone else can just steal your land, if the rules suddenly change so that you're suddenly banned from using it in this way. The rule of law means that we're not governed by men, we're not governed by individuals who can constantly change their minds. We're governed by a system of laws, of principles that makes the future a little bit more foreseeable, it's more predictable. You know what kind of rules will be there in the longer term and therefore you also begin to think more long term and you can do something about it. I uh, remember a story from a um, an African slum that I visited in Kibera in Kenya where the saying was that it's not safe to carry cash around in the slums because there are too many policemen. <laughs> it's not that there are too many sort of uh, ordinary crooks, uh, but there are too many policemen and they can do anything to you. They can tell you that you don't have a license for this or that. You're not allowed to go here or there. They could make up rules on the fly. And in that case, nobody's safe. The, the government is always a, a dangerous thing because it's based on violence and we constantly have to keep that under control. That hasn't been the case historically. Uh, Rulers, emperors, kings and princes, they decide whatever they like. The aristocrats could do anything to people, to the peasants and to their subjects. And in that case, you only have to do whatever you can to survive in the short term, because the long term you don't know anything about it. Starting in Western Europe in the 18th century and onwards and then in America we began to subject the government to the rule of law and that set off an explosion of long-term thinking, of imagination, of innovation, people suddenly devoting their lives and investing everything they had in a longer-term prospect because they knew that if they managed to succeed the chance might be small, but if they did, they would get rich and change the world. And that changed the world. That really saved our civilization, made it possible for us to live the kind of lives that we do now. And you've been listening to Johann Norberg, a senior fellow at the Washington, D.C. think tank, the Cato Institute, and author of the book Progress, Ten Reasons to Look Forward to the Future, which you can pick up at Amazon.com, or, of course, you can try a bookstore. Another great addition from our Rule of Law series. You can listen to them all at OurAmericanNetwork.org. And while you're there, share us your ideas for fascinating Rule of Law stories. And by the way, just the story about this idea of creating better seeds and artificial fertilizers and genetically modified crops and how this changed the world for so many people. But in the end, if the government's corrupt, if the police are corrupt, and I've spent some time in Haiti, and my goodness, it's all corrupt. It's a rule of law problem. Johann Norberg, his story about progress here on Our American Story.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here, from arts to sports, from business to history, and everything in between, including your story. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. Our next story comes to us from John Clausen in the Seattle area, where we're heard on Megatalk KITZ 1400. Here's John to introduce himself and then share his story. Hello, audience. Uh, this is John Clausen, the author of Missile Man, and it's the story about my father as a Cold War engineer who lived a secret life for over 40 years. And once he was diagnosed with cancer and he was told he had 18 months to live, I got a phone call from him that he wanted to come out to New Jersey where it helped me select a home and build a fence. I picked him up in Philadelphia at airport and if you know 95, it's south of Philadelphia. And as usual, he was casually dressed and my mom is an avid knitter. I refer to it in the book as a Mr. Rogers knitted sweater. And with a piece of luggage, we drove up 95 to go back up to New Jersey. Just north of the airport, there's an exit called Broad Street. And my father said, John, 10 men sat down in the basement of a YMCA and decided how nuclear weaponry was going to be deployed and missiles. And he started naming off names. And one was Enrique Fermi, which I recognized immediately. But I didn't recognize the other names. And he was looking quite pensive, kind of looking down the street. And he, he gets to the ninth person, and he could not remember his name. And he goes, and he was a guy from Georgia. And I said to my dad, if you can't remember number nine, you're sure is not going to remember number 10. And to my amazement, he goes, it's your father. It took me by such surprise that I almost went off the road, hitting the white knobs on the highway, and I kept driving. I said, Dad, what would you be doing at a meeting like that? He goes, Johnny, I got something to tell you for the next three and a half days. So the next morning, we got out uh, to start the fence. He'd already told me what uh, materials to buy. And he just started telling me what happened in his life and how he got recruited into the top secret uh, NDRC. Very few people have heard of the NDRC, the National Defense Research Committee, which is the precursor, actually two committees before the Manhattan Project. Now let's just go back to the beginning of, in the 40s, 3940, now having received a letter from the National Academy of Sciences, where my father is thinking that he's being recruited for college because he has been correcting math books. Now, let's talk about him correcting textbooks. In eighth grade, my father is told that he's missed two questions in an eighth grade math test. Now, a year and a half before, he was in a very violent car accident where he was thrown from the car after church when a drunk T-boned their car they were driving on a gravel road in Chiron, Iowa. 
My father went flying. They had to look for him in the cornfield where he was. He was unconscious and with this gigantic scar on his face, they brought him back to the house and the only dressing on his face was the drunk driver's t-shirt and they just assumed my dad was going to die. Uh, they didn't even bother going to see a doctor. My grandfather just said, I'm not wasting any money. Well, there is no money. And my dad's in a coma, and his mom was very devout Christian. She locks herself in a prayer closet, and she prays nonstop. Now, this accident happened Sunday, let's say noon. He wakes up on Tuesday morning, and he takes the t-shirt off his face, and that gash is fully healed. My father kept that open the way it was because he always wanted to remind himself that God kept him alive, and now he realizes that he's given him a mathematical and mechanical skill set that is not normal, that he's alive for a purpose. He shortly realized thereafter that not only was he a mathematical savant, that things just naturally came to his brain now, that he was also a mechanical savant. Now, it's very, very, very rare to see a theoretical and a mechanical savant kind of combined in one package. We've been emailing with the world's leading expert. He's a doctor out of the University of Wisconsin. He's the world's leading expert on savants, and he's only met 16 called post-birth savants. But what's so rare with my father, it's mechanical and theoretical. Albert Einstein, while he might have been a theoretical genius, he wasn't mechanical at all. He had a hard time even tying his shoes and how to do that. He can do all the theoretical codes of nuclear reactions along with how to fly a missile. Usually those are two completely separate uh, skill sets. So my father is basically a one-man shop for a nuclear or ballistic missile, which is extremely rare. And you're listening to John Clausen, and he's the author of Missile Man, The Secret Life of Cold War Engineer Wallace Clausen, and his father's secret, super secret, double life as a nuclear missile savant is what this story is about and so much more when we come back more of john clausen's father's story and he listens in seattle where we're heard on megatalk k-i-t-z 1400 here on our american stories
And we continue with Our American Stories and John Clausen's story of his father's super-secret double life as a nuclear missile savant. And this is back when that really mattered, folks, around, before, and just after the Manhattan Project and right into the Cold War. Let's return to John and more of his father's story. So once my father is correcting textbooks, the teacher, the basketball coach as well, mails the textbook back to the publisher because my father took the textbook where they said he missed two questions and my father told the teacher the textbook is wrong. And my father that night when he took the teacher's textbook home, not only corrected the, the questions which were in the back of the textbook, he corrected the entire textbook and rewrote it how it should read. So when they were scouring the country looking for the top scientists in America, they noted MIT, Yale, Harvard, Caltech, UC Berkeley. That's when they said to them, you might want to check out this young kid in Iowa. His name's Wallace Clausen, but there's one thing about him. He's 17, I think. And they kind of shrugged it off initially, but the publisher said, you probably should go see him because he's already correcting our astrophysics textbooks. So my dad went to this small rural country school that incorporated all the grades in basically a classroom, rural, rural Kyron, Iowa. And my dad was on the basketball team, and that week of practice back in February of 1940, he received a letter from the National Academy of Sciences thinking, we'd like to talk to you about your math skills. Well, my dad thought he was being recruited to go to college. Well, he had no idea it was the NDRC coming after him. So... He asked the coach if he could have a half hour because he's being recruited to maybe go to college. And he knew the tough environment my dad grew up with, with his dad being a drunk, a very abusive uh, father. He goes, Wally, you can have a half hour. He was in basketball outfit. He pulled on his pants over, but he left his his basketball shirt on and a light coat, and it was very cold. He ran all the way to the cafe and there's the three G-men and they must have looked at this young kid and say, you're Wallace Clausen? And my dad goes, yeah. And they sat down with my father and they said, if you take more than two hours to correct this question, we're not interested. And now my father's thinking, I've only got like 20 minutes left now. I got to get out of here because it's going to be 10 minutes to run back. And the two of the gentlemen went to the restroom, and my father just sits down, instantaneously rewrites this very long, protracted math question, and then rewrites it saying that this should be the way it should be written. It's not so cumbersome. It's not so complex. Always make math very logical. He never liked to see people use math to intimidate anybody. So he had ran, started running back, and that's when the two gentlemen came back out and sat down at the table and said, what do we do, scare the punk kid off? And the gentleman who saw what my dad had done, 
said, we don't know who should be more scared, him or us. So the NDRC was in such a panic and in a hurry, they infiltrated 18 high-profile scientific universities, and they acted all like graduate students or young professors, but they were all doing research work for the NDRC. But of one of those committees, there was a one called the Uranium Committee. They determined that the making of an, ex they call it then a super explosive, was not all that far-fetched. It looks like it can be done, and we're recommending that we go to the next phase. So what FDR did, he split the NDRC Uranium Committee off into its own group called the S-1 Committee. And uh, my father went with the radar down to Jacksonville, Florida, where all these radar, microwave radar sets were attached during World War II. That's where they perfected the microwave radar. They call it the biggest unsung hero of World War II because if the U-boats were not uh, captured correctly and eliminated, 40 to 50% of all shipping lanes across the Atlantic were being taken out, sunk. Well, within three years, three and a half years, if you wanted to be in a U-boat, you were putting your life <laughs> at severe risk of being killed. So when the microwave was done, he was brought in to help design the first thermonuclear computer with a gentleman who was considered the greatest mathematician of the 20th century, uh, John von Neumann, who was quite an interesting character in himself uh, with his office directly across the hallway from Albert Einstein. And that was the connection of my father getting to know Albert across the hallway from his closest mentor, because John von Neumann uh, had developed the first programmable computer program, which was unheard of back in the early 50s. And my father was exposed to the mechanical machine at Iowa State while doing radar projects f from the name of John Altasinoff, who was considered to be the first person to manufacture a computer. So they combined the computer of Altasinov with my father and the program from John von Neumann, and hence you end up with the IBM 704 computer, which was brought out to Livermore, California from Poughkeepsie, New York. And as my father told me, it took three 18-wheelers to transport that machine. And he says, John, you have no idea of the security around that convoy. But uh, it's important for everyone to realize that during the 50s, that was the 7 Series computers tweaked. And then the IBM had a, a natural ability then to tweak it again so it could be commercialized and sell it. And that's when the seven series IBM computers turned into the 360, which was one of IBM's most successful commercial machines ever built. Now let's explain this. When the atomic bomb was dropped in 1945, that was what you call a fission bomb. It splits the atom. That was Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Well, they found out mathematically, which are incredibly complex calculations, that 
if you take the heat energy of a fission bomb, which is what was dropped at Nagasaki, fission, and if you take that million degree heat and you specifically direct it at hydrogen atoms, you vaporize off the one electron, and now what you do, you try to implode billions of hydrogen atoms, which is basically considered like the center of the sun. So if you have them implode on each other, the energy release is the energy of the sun. So that's what my father specialized in. Then in 46, the government wanted my father to do advanced ballistic calculations under the guise of being an engineering student. The first thing I did, I pulled his grades from Iowa State. There my father is, he's flunking nine classes, nine. He flunked basic math 101. So they made him look like he was the flunky. So he's now at uh, University of Minnesota. All of a sudden, the, the government started a long four-year process to figure out if there were moles within our nuclear and scientific world. And we know that in Los Alamos, that they caught uh, a group of the engineers selling secrets to the Russians. So they come to my father and they tell him, Wallace, we're thinking they're going to be coming after you now. And we think there could be a mole within your group. And you're listening to John Clausen telling the story of his dad. And that would be Wallace Clausen. And his super secret double life as a nuclear missile savant. And my goodness, what's remarkable about this story is that the dad had never shared his story with his own son. It was a cancer diagnosis that made it happen. And of course, what a better way to tell a son the story of your life than while building a fence. When we come back, we continue the story of John Clausen's father here on Our American Stories. And we continue here on Our American Stories with the life of Wallace Clausen, as told by his son, John Clausen, author of the book Missile Man, The Secret Life of Cold War Engineer Wallace Clausen, and soon to be a movie. There are producers attached to this as we speak, and of course, screenwriters. But now, let's return to the story. We last heard that the Russians were coming after John's father, Wallace. Here's John with what happened next. We want you now to go to Iowa and act like you're going to be a farmer and we're going to isolate you and living with uh, your father-in-law at the farm in Kyron, Iowa and tell everybody you're now going to be a farmer. So he did that, and but he wasn't done working. 
they did the drops at the windmill of scientific papers where he would go pick them up early in the morning, take them back to the farmhouse, he'd crawl up into the attic and do the mathematical calculations, put them back in the bag, and then he'd put a light on up in the attic to notify his handlers that I've got a fresh drop of research papers I've developed. But what my father failed to recognize is that my grandfather was up at 4 a.m. every day, and my grandfather could see that his new son-in-law was leaving at 4.30 in the morning and come back in like 10 minutes. So he watched this go on and on, and he watched how the light would go on and off, and in certain times when the light was on, he'd leave that day. So when they were in the kitchen... My grandfather approached my dad. He was in World War I, and I have uh, framed at my home here the letter he wrote to his father about how horrible the conditions were in France in World War I, and that he learned to sleep with rats crawling on his face. And that backs up his statement, I know what a rat smells like, and I think I've got one in my family. And my father very calmly responded saying, you know, Alvin, you fought for this country in a certain way. I'm just doing it in a different way. And my grandfather backed off. Never a word was ever said about anything. So after about a year of doing that is when IBM came a knocking. And that's when my father was brought into the commercial world of IBM, still doing a lot of government projects, but under the guise of IBM's Back then, it was called the Military Products Group. So when we were doing the interviewing of my mom, and we went to my mom with my writer and researcher, where we asked my mom, didn't you think Wallace had kind of a strange career path? He's getting an engineering degree, now says he wants to be a farmer, and now gets hired by the IBM Military Products Group. What kind of career path is that? And we got the biggest chuckle out of that because my mom said this, oh, Wallace would have been such a good farmer. She still thought about my dad being a farmer. It was very touching. Well, then the life all of a sudden changed when Russia f shot off Sputnik up into the sky and they went to get my dad out of bed uh, we had a four kids sleeping in a two-bedroom house. My mom and dad had one, and we had four kids in the other. And my brother is seven years older than me. He remembers that I was holding on to my dad's leg because I was sleeping usually on the floor with my blanket. And when my dad went to leave, I grabbed onto his leg, and my brother woke up, who would have been 10 at the time, and my brother vividly sees four large-statured men with rifles getting my father and shuttling him off. And what they were doing, they were going to be analyzing the track data of the satellite as it went. And my dad said to everybody, oh, calm down. So my dad put those calculations in. But we, a month later, shot our first satellite off. We thought we were going to be first. We weren't. But that's when President Eisenhower initiated the program of NASA. 
So the exact month NASA was formed, we moved down to Long Beach, California, where my father is involved in IBM's what they call Space Systems West Division on on very unique address called Wilshire Boulevard. From there, in 1962, we moved up to San Jose, California. One thing that's important to note that whenever you have a person who even has a group that knows the actual ballistic codes that can activate a variety of different either ballistic missiles or missiles in wherever, you always have to be able to find where that person is. So in the early 60s, the military had developed GPS guidance systems with satellites. We had it installed, my dad did, in the back of the Austin Healy Sprite. So twice there was a time in which the government was following that Sprite in San Francisco being driven by my brother, and my brother runs out of gas. They realized that the Sprite wasn't moving along the side of a highway in San Francisco. A military truck pulls up next to my brother and says, we think you need some gas. And they fill him up, and off he went. My brother was thinking, man, that's strange. And then another time, the Sprite was actually stolen, and my brother was directed not to call the police, call dad if, that, if, if you don't know where that car is. And they just went and got the car and brought it back. So, and then there was a war called the Six Day War when uh, Egypt basically led an attack of a coalition of countries in the Middle East against Israel. And Russia was so frustrated with America that we helped Israel out so much in the Six-Day War. And what does uh, Russia do? They move in 15,000 advisors into Egypt and 600 SAM sites. Those are surface-to-air missiles. So lo and behold, guess who moves to Switzerland in 1970? My father moves to Switzerland, and this is how he told this to the family. And I'll never forget it as long as I live. He said it in a very plain, calm voice. And I'm going, where in the heck is Switzerland? He goes, the Shah of Iran wants me to assist on building a water dam project. And I'm thinking, whoa, what does my dad know about water dams? And... The week before we moved to Switzerland, the PLO had hijacked an airplane out of Zurich and they blew it up. My father absolutely freaked. He was thinking the PLO has infiltrated the network of his program and he thought they were maybe coming after not only him, but his family. At San Francisco, Uh, We flew first class, and it was a 747, and my father later told me that the whole front row of coach were armed guards for security. We landed, we got off, we're going through a pack of customs, we're in customs lines, and all of a sudden I see my dad in a window, and he's saying, come over here. A door opened up, and we just walked out. 
And you're listening to John Clausen telling the story of his father slash engineer, Wallace Clausen. But not just any engineer, folks. This is the story of John's father's secret life as a Cold War engineer, a super secret double life as a nuclear missile savant. And when we come back, we'll continue with this remarkable story. The book is Missile Man, The Secret Life of Cold War Engineer Wallace Clausen. The storyteller is John Clausen. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. Turn to John Clausen's story about his father Wallace here on Our American Stories. We left off with John and his family having just landed at Zurich Airport in Switzerland. We were out of that airport in under 30 seconds because my father didn't know if, if they were going to attack now at the Zurich Airport where they hijacked the plane the previous week. And we got in the car and we drove to Tallville, which is where we lived in our house. That had to be a good 15, 20 miles. We had to go through at least 40 stoplights. We didn't hit one red light. And my father said we were in a convoy of three cars, and the first car controlled the lights of the street. And uh, my father, when he was telling me his story as to what we did when we lived overseas, he says, Johnny, look at your passport. You never, ever entered the country of Switzerland. I go, I got a high school diploma from Switzerland. And he looked at me with his hands in concrete, looked straight up at me and said, Johnny, we can make anything disappear. What my dad was, had done, he had put ballistic missiles in Iran in case Russia came in to attack Israel. I think it's important to do in telling you the story with my father is some of his idiosyncrasies and things he liked to do, because obviously he could not have traditional friends, because he couldn't trust anybody, for obvious reasons. If you know the nuclear codes, you're not going to be hanging out with somebody. But what my dad liked to do, though, he loved to hit uh, fly balls to my friends, because he always thought the kids could be trusted. So we often did that, and my father would always carry a plastic satchel. This is in the early, mid-70s. And he says, Johnny, open up. I want to show you something that we're developing. And in it was a 12-inch by 2 by 2. It looked like a, a, a white piece of chalk, but it virtually weighed nothing. And I go, what? Like styrofoam, but it was denser than styrofoam. And I, I go to dad, he goes, what do you want me to see? He goes, Johnny, I just want to show you what the world's greatest hot plate looks like. Now, that was the sample piece of the space shuttle tiles 
as you re-enter Earth's atmosphere, there's incredible amounts of mass heat developed as you enter atmosphere again. And that two inch thick, they ended up painting it with a different color that even absorbed more heat as it came in. But that was one of the original space sh shuttle tiles that was being developed. And my father often would say, Johnny, inquire about whose TV's working and not working. And, um, you know, I have kind of a propensity of fixing television sets. I kind of get a kick out of it. And the only thing he ever asked once in a while would be like a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, and he'd completely tear apart the back of the TV set and fix their color TV with ever bringing out a manual or anything. He just went in there and he'd go, Johnny, go into my tube wall, go two, row two down, bucket three over, and I need two of those. Or go down four, four over, I need one of those. And I'd run back. And uh, I would, he would take them and he'd, he had carried his soldering iron with him and he'd fix tubes. And those tubes, which he was using, were what you call G-force rated. In other words, they were used in missiles. And you can just imagine, if you have a tube machine and the G-forces in a missile, if those tubes aren't reinforced with special strong connection tips and glass, they'll break apart. And those were all G-force rated for missiles. So when my father died, I gosh, I can't believe I actually did this. We took all of his tubes and took them to the uh, dump. And I've later found out that on an average, those tubes were probably worth 200 grand today. My father always said this, Sunday is the day the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. I woke up every Sunday and he was always playing church music and he was always asking me, who can we pick up to fill our car to go to Sunday school with? He goes, Johnny, get up and get your friends here. Uh, we'll wait for him at the train station or whatever. But the Sunday he felt comfortable. Uh, he even was kept a smile on his face. He never really lingered around, but he always, that was his time to unwind and appreciate that he'd been kept alive and that he now knows what his mission in life is, is to try to keep the world safe. And then in 1982, my father is sent to England where under Carter's administration, they were quietly, secretly going to be bringing in missiles into England. And then NATO says to Russia, in an exercise only, we are going to attack you. And it's generally going to increase over the 10 days. And the last three days is going to climax with a nuclear exchange of weapons. So their hair is up and they're watching all the computer codes and my father is in the exercise making sure that none of the codes are in launch mode but have all been deactivated. And there's thousands of missiles. Can you imagine thinking, oh, did I forget about that missile in Turkey? So for three days, 
Russia goes to DEFCOM 2. DEFCOM 2, we have never been at before with an enemy. They are expecting nuclear war 8, 9, and 10, 1983. And we have no idea that Russia's even this mad. Soon after that exercise ended, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. And basically, he retired from IBM uh, and came back uh, to California. But when he found out that he had 18 months to live, he wanted to at least leave some sort of mark that to his family that he did exist in a different way than being a quote-unquote IBM sales-affiliated guy. So when we were coming back to return the post hole digger, my father said, Johnny, pull in here. I want you to see this house. And it was John von Neumann's house where the top scientists were deciding what we were going to do with nuclear activity. Now, the bomb had been dropped. Now, top scientists, Fermi, Oppenheimer, they wanted to put the genie back in the bottle. They figured, you know what, this is a horrible thing we've done. You can go on YouTube and see Oppenheimer openly crying of the technology that they've released to the world. But my father was in the camp that said, you know what, the genie's out of the bottle. We can't put it back in, but you know what we can do? A scientist can stay so far ahead of the military in uniqueness that we'll control it. There's no doubt that my father was a walking savant, met mechanical and theoretical, but he did not give off any of that aura. He just did it and quietly walked away. And his skill set was so far advanced, he was probably 25 to 28 years before Bill Gates even talking about programs. But he, I look at it this way. Once you're in the inner sanctum of top secret computer projects, you're not going to be openly now working on commercial projects. It's just not going to happen. So, so he came back uh, to Seattle uh, after uh, in uh, 1989, and he really got sick in a very quick way. And he passed away in May of 1991. And I'll never forget, he was at a hospice center. And I basically, said goodbye and I said I said goodbye and he said he learned so much from me and I was thinking what could you possibly learn from me and he said he learned about life and I left and he died that night after my mom and, and uh, two sisters sang hymns. And you've been listening to John Clausen choking up, talking about his father and his father's passing. And my goodness, what a story. A car accident nearly kills him as a boy. He's in a coma. 
and miraculously comes out. He thanks God for it and pledges to do something special with his life, and my goodness, he does. By the way, he was in the graduating class of six in Chiron, Iowa. He missed questions on purpose, so his girlfriend at the time, Marilyn, would be valedictorian. Marilyn would become his bride. And by the way, she didn't ask questions. She trusted him, and she was wise to do so. And my goodness, what a life story. And you can learn more by buying the book Missile Man, The Secret Life of Cold War Engineer Wallace Clausen. And it's the story of the super secret double life of John's father, Wallace. Their story, a great family story here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories. 